Hopefully, as a listener of the Medics Money podcast, you appreciate the need for all doctors to receive some financial education. But nowhere is this need greater than for GP partners, because not only are GP partners clinicians, but they're also small business owners. And as GP partners, we receive almost no education about this business aspect of being a GP. And that is exactly why we started the Medics Money New to GP Partnership course. We will teach you everything that a GP partner needs to know to run a happy, thriving and profitable GP practice. And we are on the third cohort of our course now and it's going amazingly well. And that cohort is starting on June the 22nd. All teaching is online and recorded. So if you can't make it live, you can catch up online. And we have an exclusive online community of over 150 GPs, also financial and GP business experts where you can ask questions anytime. So we were thinking, how can we give you a flavor of what we cover on the course, but also make it useful for our non-GP colleagues who we know listen to the podcast. And hopefully we've cracked that formula today because we're going to play a few clips from the course. So the first one is Ed just covering the basics of what happens when you become an employee and then move to being self-employed. The second clip, rather shamelessly, I included a bit of myself talking about how to improve the service you offer patients by using technology, which can also make your life easier and decrease your costs. And that is something which I think everybody could benefit from. The third clip is from Rachel Morris, who is the host of You Are Not A Frog podcast and also a doctor on managing your stress and how to thrive and not burn out as a doctor. And that is relevant to absolutely all doctors. And the final clip is not relevant to anyone except dispensing GPs, to be perfectly honest, because we talk about some top tips for dispensing GPs. So hopefully it's useful to everyone. If you want to come on our course, the next cohort starts on June the 22nd. All previous cohorts have sold out really fast, so you need to get in there early and head to medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash GP course, and I'll put the link in the show notes below. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists, and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. So the course starts by covering the basics and your bit on the differences between being employed and self-employed is actually really popular, mate. Do you want to give us a summary? So in this first clip, I talk about the difference between being an employee and being self-employed. So what changes when you go from being an employee to being a GP partner, essentially? And that would include things such as how the income tax system changes, how the tax payment system changes, but also other things such as how record keeping changes and the legals as well. And later on after that bit, you talk about how payments on account work which is quite simple but really important to understand your tax bill so yeah let's listen to that clip so as we said right at the very start we thought today we'd go through some of the essentials of tax and some of the things that we think you guys really need to know now rather than wait down the line so as i said before you'll be getting more on tax from myself and the other accountants throughout the the sessions but today is all about things that we think you really need to make sure you're you're aware of up front okay and we thought it might be useful to start with what's changed when you've now become self-employed as a partner compared to what, where you were previously as an employee. Okay, now some of you will know lots of this, some of you won't know much at all. So apologies, not trying to patronise anyone, but hopefully this will be a, a useful refresher for those that know. 
And for those that don't know, this is really vital stuff, okay? So the first thing that will change is how income tax uh, works, okay? So in terms of being an employee, you'll all know that when you were an employee, you had your, your pay slip, it showed your gross pay, and then they deducted income tax from that, as well as other things such as national insurance, student loan, pension, etc. But they did that via something called a tax code, which is, I'm sure you guys hopefully know about this. If you ever listen to any of our Medics Money podcasts, etc., I go on about tax codes quite a lot. But that's a code so that the payroll department, they'll have no idea what your um, tax affairs are. All they know is they get a number, they get a letter from HMRC, and they use that combination of the number and the letter to work out how much income tax to deduct your gross salary. That pay as you earn system, that tax code system, that's completely out the window now for you guys. It doesn't exist anymore. As, as self-employed individuals, you won't be getting a, a tax code, which is probably a blessing. And you'll also fall into the self-assessment scheme rather than the pay as you earn scheme. Okay. So self-assessment, uh, you're basically going to be assessing your own tax, submitting a tax return to HMRC, and then paying the tax accordingly. Okay. Obviously, I want to say you'll be doing that. To, you know, most of you will have a practice accountant that will do that for you. But that's the system that you're not going to find yourself in, okay? Self-assessment, you're no longer going to be playing um, under the pay-as-you-earn scheme. You're no longer going to have a tax code, okay? The, the second change um, to your advantage is your national insurance um, is going to change or has changed. So as an employee, you'd pay class one national insurance. And then your employer would also pay class one national insurance. It's quite a big bill for your for employer. As a self-employed individual, you're going to pay two different types of national insurance. One is called class two national insurance. And we're going to come onto this in a couple of slides. But the class two national insurance, that's a funny old thing. That's where you pay a fixed sum every week um, of three pounds or five pence. And then you've got class four, which is the main one, the big one, which is where you pay national insurance on your profits. Okay, your taxable profits, you'll pay uh, national insurance on that. Okay, and as I say, we'll come on to that in a couple of slides time. But that's a big change from being an employee okay now a really significant change is how your tax is paid and this is something we're going to be definitely going to be talking about in, in a few slides because this could be quite a bit of a, a sting in the tail if you guys don't know about it okay so as an employee everything's kind of simple you know you get your, your pay slip they've deducted your tax already every month using your tax code they pay the money over to hmrc for you you don't have to get involved it's quite simple okay but when you're a partner, you have to make what we call payments on account, okay? And that means you have to make tax payments in January and also in July, okay? And there can be, as I say, a bit of a sting in the tail. So we're gonna go through that in detail in a minute, and we're gonna go through some an example as well. Just make sure you guys all know what that means for you, why there's that sting in that tail, okay? That also is gonna change for you guys. So previously, again, nice and simple for an employee that's deducted from their, uh, their payroll directly and paid over to HMRC. Uh, or the pensions authorities when you're self-employed you have to make both your what we call an employee obviously not an employee but it's the employee contribution but also the employer contribution as well so i'm a salary gp i pay my pension by my payslip my employer will also be paying part of uh, my pension as well and that all goes into the pot okay for you guys as partners you actually very weirdly and quite unfairly have to pay both an employee and an employer contribution 
you get some reimbursement for this from the government um, because it seems a bit mean to make you pay your employer contributions but it doesn't cover the whole lot and if you if you're kind of thinking what the hell is this about what's going on i'm confused you know don't worry you know as as tommy alluded to earlier we've got lots and lots about the pension okay so we're gonna talk about that quite a bit for you guys and break it down but just be aware okay your pension bill may be slightly higher than than you're expecting okay now next expense claims they also change for you guys. And actually, this is to the benefit of you guys, okay? Now, for those of you who have listened to our podcast or read my blogs, you know that I go on quite a lot about making sure that you claim your employment expenses against your employment income to get a tax rebate, okay? And as an employee, things are pretty hard, really, to get that tax deduction, okay? So the government have sort of four set areas where they definitely let you claim for a tax deduction, but anything that doesn't fall into that category has to meet what's called the general rule, and it's a really tough thing to meet. You have to ensure that any expense that you incur is wholly for your employment, exclusively for your employment, necessary for your employment, and it has to be incurred whilst you're doing your job, okay? And that's a really tough thing to achieve and that means that quite a lot of expenses that you'd assume would be tax deductible are usually disallowed so classic ones would include for example diploma costs or expenses for continuing professional development these things they argue aren't necessary you'd, you'd say of course they're necessary you know i need definitely need to go on this this course continue my professional development but the government say well actually it's not necessary because it's just making you a better doctor. It's not because you have to do it. And secondly, you're not doing it whilst you're at work. So a classic example of that would be I went uh, on an, an ALS course as an F2, rainy weekend in Worthing. And uh, now that was paid for me by my study budget. But imagine I paid for that myself. That was definitely an expense I had to incur. But HMRC would say, well, you didn't do it whilst you were actually performing your duties as a doctor. You were doing it on a weekend in, in Worthing. So those things are disallowed. Now, that's for employees. For you guys, self-employed, you only have to meet the following rules, okay? It has, any expense that you incur has to be wholly and exclusively uh, for the purposes of the trade, okay? The trade of your GV practice. And that means you ditch the necessary rule. And that means a whole host of expenses can now be tax deductible. So if you do a diploma, that's tax deductible. If you do continue professional development, that's tax deductible. Um, it also lends itself to other things. So for example, as a partner, something you can do now, which you couldn't do as an employee, is you can now claim for part expenses. So what I mean by that is if, you, if you've got anything where you expended partly on personal use and partly on business use, you can claim the business element um, against your tax bill, okay? So if I work, let's make up a real strange example, but if I worked um, one day a week uh, as a GP partner, in a practice and I worked at home and I'm on my phone, my personal mobile day in day or all day long calling patients, I can claim that proportion of my mobile phone bill against tax. Okay. That's something you guys can do. That's something that I personally as a, an employee can't do. This is just to let you know, you know, basically as a self-employed individual, as a partner, you have to keep any records that pertain to a particular tax year for quite a long period of time. Okay. So for seven years as an employee, it's only one year. Okay, and that's one year or seven years after the end of the tax year to which it relates. Okay, so the long and short of it is, guys, just any document you get that's relating to your tax returns, uh, the tax affairs, just keep it somewhere safe. Okay, just scan it in, store it somewhere, put it in the cloud, put it in a folder, whatever you want to do, just make sure you keep all these documents. Okay, 
And the final thing we're going to, you know, that changes is in terms of the, the legal side of things. OK, and as again, as, as Tommy alluded to, um, we're going to be going into the legal side of things in much more detail. We have a, a great lawyer who's going to be talking to you guys. But just to say that as an employee, you obviously have your employment contract and that provides you with various protections. And you also have some um, employment law protection as well in terms of sick pay, unfair dismissal and so on and so forth. As a self-employed partner, you have a lot less legal protection, okay? You're self-employed. A lot of your protections are going to come from your partnership agreement. So it's really important that you know what is in that partnership agreement. So as Tommy said, you know, make sure you get a copy, okay? We're going to be talking about the partnership agreement a lot. I can't believe for a second that, you know, any of your practices don't have a partnership agreement. For any businesses that don't have a partnership agreement, then the law says that all the rules that apply based on a very antiquated, old, not fit for purpose piece of legislation uh, called the 1890 Partnership Act. Okay, so that's not great news at all. You really need a partnership agreement. And I'm, I'm pretty sure all of you guys, all your practices will have one. All right, hopefully that was useful to you. Now, being a GP at the moment is really challenging, but technology is evolving really, really fast. And this brings us new opportunities to harness technology, which I think is going to be really important going forward. So in this short clip, I just tell you how at our practice, we've transformed the way we book our flu vaccine clinic into a way that's better for patients, better for our staff, much more efficient, utilizes a really, really simple piece of technology that all GPs have access to now, and also decreases your costs, which is good. So again, hope this is useful. I just wanted to go through something which kind of sums up what the course is about, because over the next few sessions, we are going to go through how to understand the accounts and the mechanics of how your business works. And when I joined my partnership, as you would imagine, had a pretty good look at the accounts with some help. Cheers, mate. And I noticed that we were spending £24,000 on post which sounds like a lot to me. How do you know how much that is? And the way that you know is that your accountant can provide what's called benchmarking, which is your accountant has you know, hundreds of doctor's surgeries and they will know for a surgery of your size, how much does the average spend on postage? And it turned out that we were spending way above average on postage and it had been flagged up several times by the accountants and the partners had said, well, the reason is we have a really elderly population and we send out so we used to send out first class letters to invite them for a flu vaccine. Amazing. So I had a look at this and it's a really exciting time to be a GP at the moment because the technological side of things, which Gandalf is going to talk about in a bit, is moving so fast. So I had a look at why it was 24 grand and it was because we were sending out a letter, but it was actually worse than that. We would send them a letter to invite them to phone the surgery to book a flu jab. Now, I don't know if anyone's cracked the phone paradox because our phone lines are always super busy. So you've got these people who you want to jab, you know, giving a flu jab is a profitable exercise and you're asking them to phone up your surgery. And guess what? They started going to the pharmacies and other places because we are not the only places that can do this. We are competing with pharmacies for this work. And so we looked at the, what the technological solution was and using system one or AccuRx or a load of other things, you can send out a link to book the patient into a uh, slot. So the link goes and it just allows the patient to book themselves into a pre-allocated slot. And this could be for flu, it could be for a blood test, it can be for a GP clinic, it can be for anything. And you can set this up really easily. 
And so we rolled that out. And in the first year, we managed to book 70% of our flu jabs using this method. And the patients preferred it because they didn't have to wait on the phone. The reception and admin preferred it because there was way less admin. They didn't have to send out the letters and they didn't have to take the calls to book the people in. So it was just an example where we reduced our expenditure. So we reduced it from, we, re we saved 16 grand basically. And so if I'm going to be there for 20, that's 320,000 pounds that we saved doing this. But we didn't only save money, we improved our service. We made it better for the patient, a better patient experience. So they're less likely to go to the pharmacy for their flu jab and more likely to come to us. And it was just a win-win. And the only reason this whole process started was because I was helped, thanks mate, to look at the accounts in a really forensic way and work out where the opportunities lie. So when we're going through all of that in the first two sessions, just try to think about these kind of things. Uh, and if you're going to make these kind of changes, you need to understand where your income and expenditure comes from. So this slide is just a summary. And all I would say is just have a look at this before session two, because session two, we're going in detail so that we can understand where, where we earn our money and where our money goes. So have a look at that. In this next clip, we have Dr. Rachel Morris, who's talking to us about the zone of power. And she's the host of the really popular You Are Not A Frog podcast and really important well-being session. And personally, this is the session that I benefit from the most. So let's have a listen to what Rachel's got to say. Okay, so here's a scenario for you. Waking up early, worrying about the day ahead, you find it difficult to switch off when you get home. There's some recent changes at work which you certainly didn't agree to. Okay, so in a minute, I'm going to ask you what is in your control in that scenario and what is outside of your control in that scenario. Now, the, the, the zone of power is one of my favorite shapes and it, it really, really has helped me know when in just getting me unstuck when I just feel like there's nothing I can do and, and I'm really worried about things. So let's do that ourselves. Now, if we go back to the scenario of, you know, worrying about stuff, there's been some changes at work, there's stuff going on. If we think about this white slide being the whole of our life okay the circle in the middle there that's stuff in your life that you have control over all right so if we think about life and work what at the moment do you not have control over and we'll put it outside the circle so if you can you can annotate outside the circle or you can just stick it in the chat okay so you just go to the annotate button go on to go on to text and i will start us off by putting the weather no control over the weather so what sorts of things in life and work do we just have absolutely no control over right now so stick in the chat or at man or annotate on the screen see if i can oh yeah i'll get rid of that don't worry if you don't manage to use the annotate function it takes a bit of practice covid yeah we have no control absolutely no control over covid right whether the government constantly changing guidelines <laughs> my builders yeah we're having our patio dug up at the moment that rings the bell patient expectations yeah what they expect what they want boris i don't think anyone has control over boris um, how other people behave how they react other partners retirement plans yeah what's going on for them in their own personal lives right no control over that unless you're married to them i guess <laughs> I've been hearing about lots of partners being married to each other recently. There's been some quite funny threads on Facebook about that. 
anything else what else probably our own partners our own kids how they have teenagers I don't really have much control over what they do right now. <laughs> UK tax and pension issues. I wonder who put that to me. <laughs> GP pensions, what's going on with the whole yeah, payment thing. So income quite a lot of the time, what the practice can get for various things. We have we probably have a bit more control over expenditure than income, I'm thinking. I could be wrong though. So, okay, Tommy's nodding, which means I'm right. Good. Partners falling pregnant. Yes. Hopefully you don't have any control over that. <laughs> maybe, maybe system one, yeah, computers crashing, IT, ah, not much control over that, apart from you may have as a partner control over what system you decide to use in your practice. Absolutely. So you get the gist of it. We don't have control over other people, right? What they say, what they do, what they think, what's going in their personal life. We don't have control over government guidelines, what NHS England do, all of those sorts of things, right? So I don't have control over my children. For example, I don't have control over what my children eat for breakfast or whether they have breakfast right now. I do have control over what cereals I buy and have in the house for them to eat. So now let's look at what's in our zone of power. Out of everything that's going on now, both at work, at home, what is in your control? So start to either stick stuff in the circle or in the chat. What right now is under your control? Yeah, how I eat, what I eat. Absolutely. What else have you got? I say how I eat, how I look after myself, what exercise I do, how much alcohol I choose to drink, when I choose to go to bed. Yeah, self-care. If I have my phone in the bedroom or not, by the way, I don't get to do well-being with you guys. One well-being sleep tip, buy a cheap alarm clock, charge your phones downstairs, right? Because otherwise you go to set your alarm. What do you do when you set your alarm? You check your texts, you check your messages, you check your emails, you check what's doing next, next day. And by the time you've done that, you've done half an hour of work. So get your phones and devices outside of the bedroom. Okay, so when I leave work, that is in your control. Me time. Now, if often when we put what time I choose to leave, we have a yes, but or a so what. So if we have any yes, buts or so what's on that one, let me know. The meetings I choose to attend. Love it, Helen. The meetings I choose to attend. How I manage my time. Yes. So I'm not in control of the work coming at me quite often, but I am in control of how I choose to do it. Yeah. Exercise. How much time, me time I have. Absolutely. I'm in charge of when I leave work. I can choose to leave work halfway through the day if I wanted to, but there would be consequences of that choice. It would mean work would be left undone. It might be unsafe for patients. So I will choose to stay at work so that I can get that work done. But I am in control of when I leave and when I, when I come. Okay, so I am not in control right now of what you guys think of me. No control of that. I am in control of how I've prepared for this session, how I present myself. So I'm in control of what I do, the conversations I choose to have with people, how I choose to approach people, my tone of voice. I'm in control of how I respond to situations. Now, I might not be in control of how I react to situations because I think reaction is quite automatic. I am in control of how I then choose to respond to situations. So you get the general gist, okay? The zone of power. It's all about what you're out, not in control of, what you are in control of. And let me just clear the drawings on that. So I wonder if you can identify some people in your life that you know of that get really, really stressed because what they're doing is focusing on all that stuff that they can't control. 
the government, other people, what he said to me, that patient who's being really demanding, we can't control that. We have no control over it. And so the only option left to us is to worry about it and to ruminate on it. Whereas if you focus on what you can control, you find that you feel more powerful, more productive, and you feel that your zone of power actually starts to expand. People that focus on what they can't control often find that their zone of power starts to contract or seems to contract. And you may have spotted in this, that this is very similar to the serenity prayer, you know, grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change outside my zone of power. There's nothing I can do but accept them, okay? And what can I do about the things I can control? Well, I need courage to change the things that I can control, okay? Because often having that difficult conversation, that takes a bit of courage. Saying no to that thing, that takes a bit of courage. So we need the courage to, to change stuff. We need to accept the stuff we can't change. And actually knowing the difference can be quite tricky. So that is where the zone of power comes in. And I've put a link to the chat for you with a, a link to be able to get the handout. We've got the, the handouts all about the zone of power. And we've also got, so I'll show you what the handouts look like. We'll look like, we'll look like this here. There's the zone of power there. And then the next page is, is there. And then you've also got a conversation canvas so that will allow you to speak to people and have conversations with your team. I'm just trying to find one to show you what's in the handout on what you can control and what you can't control. So there's the conversation canvas. So if you feel stuck or one of your team is stuck, then I mean, you don't even need this. You just need an A4 bit of paper with a circle in the middle, to be honest. Sit down, draw a circle of power. Say, what is in my control? What is outside my control right now? And what else is inside my control? Because I think as doctors, we sometimes have control issues, and these are our control issues, that we take too much responsibility for stuff that's outside our control, and we get too stressed about that. And sometimes we don't do enough of what is in our control. Like have those conversations, like saying no, like being courageous. And this can really help you get unstuck and it can help you with managing people as well. So we're going to do this now. We're going to put you back into breakout rooms. Okay, let's mix people up a bit as well. And remember that Tom and Kat count as two people, even though they're one person on the screen. So let's mix people up. You're literally going to do that. So think about the factors that are causing you stress at work, All right? What is in your power right now? What's in your zone of power? What's outside your zone of power? And what else could you do differently? What choices do you have? So you can either take a, a picture of that, this slide or you can just remember the questions. We're going to give you another sort of five or six minutes in that breakout room, okay? And lastly, we look into dispensing and non-dispensing practices with our specialist medical accountants, Lizzie Lloyd and Andrew Burwood. And this is pretty niche and only relevant to dispensing doctors, but have got some absolutely brilliant tips in here. Over to you, dispensing expert. <laughs> Thank you so much. So you will either be in a dispensing or a non-dispensing practice. Dispensing practices, it is a very good source of income. Basically, you're operating a dispensary as well as providing personally administered items. 
you are making a profit on the drugs that you are dispensing to your patients. You'll see at the bottom of that slide that the average dispensing practice margin is about 30%. It does tend to vary year on year. There are some significant movements in dispensing fees that are payable to practices. I think from 1st of October 2021, the headline figure was that they had decreased by about 15%. They are reviewed every six months, so it does have a, a significant impact on profitability. You'll see a couple of wide eyes there against stock take. It's really important that the practice does perform a stock take at the end of each financial year so that the correct provisions are included on the balance sheet. Really important as far as tax purposes are concerned to actually make sure you've got the correct profit in your accounts, but also important if you've got a partnership change as well. In terms of stock, because a dispensing practice holds quite a significant value of stock on its balance sheet at any particular point in time, it probably increases the amount that you as partners have to contribute towards working capital because it's another asset on the balance sheet that isn't in cash. It's sitting on the shelves. You've got to fund that. So that would be part of your buy-in and also working capital requirements. So that's an important point to note as well. As Lizzie mentioned previously, with the flu vaccinations, you are paid an enhanced service item of service fee for the administration of that flu vaccination to the patient but the chances are you're also buying that drug as well so you need to make sure that claims are being made for those personally administered items and that will all come through in the dispensing account within your own practice accounts as well so just having a routine check of the claims process and making sure that all drugs that you are supplying are being claimed is really really important and you can see quite a variation in terms of levels of profits that practices do achieve. Yeah, just to can I kind of do some top tips, Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. We'll have a top tip. <laughs> so yeah. <clears throat> if if you're dispensing, obviously you you're issuing a script before you're dispensing the item. So there it, it's easier on your process for your claims but we've got personally administered items which could include vaccinations given or things that your nurse are doing the the procedure is done first and then they've got a member to raise a script to make a claim so that's I, I suspect that there is a lot of lost claims in that whole process because there also may be changes in your management team or your nursing team and they don't know what they can and can't claim for and also we often see that practices don't put in claims every month they go oh you know we just put a big claim in once every six months now that gives more uncertainty that the process is being followed correctly but secondly that you can lose out on that basis because this dispensing fee that Andrew was talking about weirdly is based on the number of scripts that are attributable to a GP or doctor in the practice per month and it's on a sliding scale down so if all the scripts are under one doctor's name you'll be getting a lower dispensing fee than if they're spread out across all the practices um, or the doctors so if you're only putting in a claim twice a year then you're likely to be getting a lower dispensing fee that's why isn't it Andrew yes <clears throat> and the other thing you have to watch out for as well another top tip is that at the point of sale so when the script is handed over to the team in the dispensary and they ask the question whether or not you are eligible for an exemption or you have to pay the script fee of is it £9.35 at the moment? If a patient claims exemption and is not entitled to that exemption, then the practice is losing money. So how it works is 
Script is handed over, it's processed, patient either pays the fee or they don't. Scripts then go over to PPA, Prescription Pricing Authority for Processing. They will check whether the patient eligibility is correct or not. What happens is you collect that money and then PPA deduct from your monthly payments the amount of script fees that they believe you should have collected. And if there is a gap, it's because something has gone wrong at front of house. Back in the day before we had pretty much everyone paying by card, there was also the opportunity for perhaps dodgy employees to pocket the script fees and not put it through the cash register. But I think those days are pretty much gone because everyone pays by card now. So that's an improvement in terms of an area of risk. But absolutely, you need to make sure that the script fees, if they are payable by the patient, they are in fact collected. Your accounts should absolutely show a breakdown of all of the dispensing income that you receive and we show the script fees that are collected from the patients and the script fees that are deducted by the PPA to make sure there is no significant variance. Because if there is a gap, then that shows that there's a weakness in the system somewhere and that's having a detrimental impact on your profitability. I think Tommy said that is a top tip. Is that the bit you were thinking of, Tommy? Just the whole lot. I think that's whole some lot, pretty yeah. golden information for dispensing practices. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that difference between what you're collecting and what's being clawed back on your PPA statement for the dispensing fee, we found in the pandemic went a bit awry because people were not getting the script signed or filled in. You know, there was a, a different process. So I've got one practice that's now making a back claim for 16 grand of overcharged dispensing fee clawback by the PPA and another one, which is quite a small practice for eight grand. I think you had one as well, didn't you, Andrew? Yeah, and they were not successful and they had to write it off. Okay. I'm hoping my two are going to be successful. Got my yeah. fingers crossed. Just, just out of interest, do we have <laughs> many part any GPs today that are part of dispensing practices? I've got a poll for that, Andrew. Should I run the poll? Should we do that now? Let's do that. Yeah. Right on cue. Here comes the poll. <laughs> and it looks like Lizzie's off to sort her dog out. Sounds like it. So just for those on the replay, it poll doesn't come up which is rather irritating so the question is are you a partner in a dispensing or non-dispensing practice and so far the majority are non-dispensing so 78 percent 79 percent non-dispensing and 21 percent dispensing okay yeah it's useful so if you're in a dispensing practice you're likely to be asked to be putting more working capital so your buy-in will be higher because the business is carrying more assets you're buying into the stock effectively, dispensing drugs, depending on how the dispensary is. So that's probably one of the main differences and earnings, obviously. <laughs> and if you are in a dispensing practice, you will also be VAT registered as well. And as I think it was brought up, the opportunity to wholesale. So we do have quite a few practices that wholesale now. So they hold a, a license and depending on the deal that they've got with the wholesaler, it's a high turnover, low margin business. Probably you'd make, I don't know, five to 9% on your wholesale turnover. So that can distort your, depending on how your accounts are presented. And you said, you know, you want 30% dispensing margin. You know, if it's all lumped in together, then that's not going to be 30% because you're only getting potentially 5% on your wholesaling. Cool. The other thing is a practice as well. Just another top tip is to look at the actual drugs that you are prescribing and making sure that you are not prescribing drugs where you actually prescribe them at a loss. 
that is a top tip because yeah there's only probably a few lines that you make a very big margin on and others you could make a loss on or you know you just break even so they tend to be your zero discount drugs but I don't really know off the top of my head what those would be (laughs) well the prices are reviewed frequently aren't they in terms of the reimbursements so some practices would therefore in that scenario maybe give the script to the patient um this applies I think also in non-dispensing practices to go and get the drug from a pharmacy to bring it back to either be personally administered or you know you're not going to dispense it obviously you run the risk then of losing that patient who coming to your dispensary but something like Zolodex is a high value drug, isn't it? You, you risk even by buying it that you're tying up money in it and it may go out of date before you use it or become obsolete or your fridge fails. So, yeah, just think about your strategy and how much money you got tied up in these things. Yeah. And, and we said before about your accounts showing the breakdown of your dispensing account. Not only should you show the script fees paid and deducted as separate lines, but you should also show dispensing fees on a separate line and your drug reimbursements on a separate line, because then you can look at your drug reimbursements against the cost of purchasing those drugs and making sure there is a profit margin in those as well. Because I looked at one, it was a new practice we've started acting for. I looked at a set of accounts on Friday and yes, they'd made a profit, but the profit had come solely from dispensing fees. If you looked at the equation between drug reimbursement and drug costs, it was actually costing them money to provide those drugs to their patients. So that absolutely stood out like a sore thumb if your accounts don't show that breakdown then unless you've got internal review processes going on you will not know so we've covered most of the contract sources of income now like i say there will be some other nhs income sources so here's an example of the ones that we maybe tend to see you know your covid expansion fund which was was one off in 2021 and 21 22 you've got your training grants on there So I hope that summary was useful and has given you a flavour of what the course covers. As I said, all of this teaching is recorded so you don't have to come to the live sessions because we're GP partners ourselves and we know how busy you are. Our community has over 150 GPs and business finance experts in where you can ask a question anytime and the course is going really well. So if you want to join us on the next cohort which starts on June the 22nd then head to medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash GP course and if you've got any questions about the course just shoot us an email at team at medicsmoney.co.uk and we'll get straight back to you thanks for listening and see you on next week's podcast